This message by Mike Pluniak was recorded during a Sunday celebration service for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Mike serves as a pastor on staff at Cornerstone Church. Oh, good morning. Go ahead and grab your seats and you can open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. As we continue our series on Philippians, the joyful community, as we walk through this letter from the Apostle Paul, verse by verse, and this morning, we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. If you're here and you need a Bible, you can raise your hands and One of our ushers will get you a Bible that's yours to keep for free. It'd be good to have the Word of God in front of you this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. This is God's word for us today. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. In verse 27, we've entered a new section of Paul's letter to the Philippians where he is transitioning from his personal experience, his personal greeting to addressing the church and the Christians at Philippi. And as he transitions, he begins with his greatest desire for them. It's easy when we read through this to breeze by that first word in our text, only. Only this. Only means above all. If you only get one thing, if you only apply one thing, this is the main thing I desire for you, Paul says. In our house, we have this notepad in our shower. It's one of these ones that we got for Christmas one year where it can get wet and it has a pencil and you can write, it gets water on it. And so we started writing notes to each other and somehow we started writing questions to each other in the shower and everybody in our house would answer the question. And it started with, 
what is your favorite food or what's your favorite candy or what's your favorite thing to do? And somehow over weeks and months, it morphed into only questions. If you could only eat one meal for the rest of your life, what would it be? Or if you had a million dollars, but you could only buy one thing, what would you buy? To which one of our kids answered, Pokemon cards. And I was like, I hope that is a joke, because you need to get out more, kid, okay? But I'm sitting there in the shower debating, like, well, my favorite meal is pizza, but would that be my only meal? Like, would I get tired of it eventually? I'm debating with myself. I don't know. I might get tired of that. Maybe I should take the healthy option, you know, and having this debate in my mind. Because when you introduce the word only, it's not just your favorite thing. It's not something you like. It excludes everything else. It means everything else is secondary. Everything else gets excluded. Only this thing. It really raises the stakes when you ask that question. And Paul comes out of the gate in verse 27. He says, if nothing else, this is only what I want for you, that your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a big request. That's a big request. It feels weighty when you think of it like that. It feels very broad and extensive. What, what is that? mean to live a life worthy of the gospel. I've had numerous people over the years come to me with verses like this, and they ask me, you know, what, what does it mean to live a worthy life for Jesus? And almost all of them come to me with that question, and they feel like they're not doing it. They're not measuring up to this charge. They feel like their life is falling short Almost all of them feel guilty, which is the exact opposite of what Paul's intentions are when he says this to the church at Philippi. But we read this and and we think about our lives and all of a sudden we feel guilty. A worthy life? My, My life's not worthy of the gospel. So I just want to start this morning with what Paul isn't saying in these verses. I think part of the guilt we can feel reading this is we begin to interpret verse 27 and we interpret it that somehow we have to repay Jesus for what he has done for us, that we have to earn this. We have to be worthy. We have to earn the gospel. It's kind of like in a Saving Private Ryan, when Private Ryan, you remember this moment at the end of the movie where, sorry if you haven't seen it, you've had 20 years, I'm about to give away the ending, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but this whole movie, these men are sacrificing their lives and they're trying to find Private Ryan and men are dying and they're fighting off the Germans and they find him and they're, they're, there's this attack going on and all the men are dying, there's only a few left. All these men have given their lives to save Private Ryan. And Tom Hanks is dying, and he grabs Private Ryan like this by the collar, and he says to him, earn this. And I just went, what? That, that's the message? And then the movie, the whole rest of his life, Private Ryan is like 
feels guilty and I hope I've lived a life that's worthy and you know he feels bad these men gave their lives for me and my life is not worthy of this and you know Paul is not grabbing us here by the collar in verse 27 saying earn this this is the gospel you better earn this with your life that's not what he's saying here we are saved by grace Grace, by definition, is unearned. We are not worthy of it. The gospel of Christ that Paul mentions in verse 27, let's not forget the gospel as we start interpreting this verse. The gospel of Christ is good news of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. It's all about the work of Christ and how he alone is worthy. Jesus entered into the flesh, lived a perfect life of obedience to the Father, never once sinned against his Father. He was without sin. He alone was worthy, and yet he was crucified, nailed to a cross by men, but ultimately by God's will that he might die as a sacrifice for our sins. As Jesus was on the cross, he was bearing the punishment of God for our sins. He was bearing God's wrath for us. He was killed and buried, and on the third day, he rose again, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient and that sin and death had been defeated. And now by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, we are saved. We confess that we are sinful. We put our faith in the work of Christ and God saves us. Our sins are transferred onto Jesus and his righteousness and his obedience are transferred to us. God looks at us as if we had never sinned. This is good news and it's not our work, it's his work on our behalf. It's a gift from God given freely by grace that we cannot earn and we cannot repay. So Paul is not saying, you've been saved, now you better earn this. So what is he saying? What is he saying in verse 27? Well, if you look in your Bibles at verse 27, if you have an ESV Bible, there's a little footnote at the bottom that says in the Greek, it says Greek next to it, only behave as citizens worthy. And, and when we read that, it doesn't always make a lot of sense right away. The root word in our text in verse 27 is from where we get the word politics. Okay, I'm not going to get into politics. That's just the root word here. It's a play on words by the Apostle Paul that the Philippians would have immediately understood. It, it meant to them, live as a faithful citizen. Okay, and I want to give you just a super brief history lesson about Philippi because it'll help us understand, I think, what Paul is trying to say to them in verse 27, that you'd understand the significance of this word to them. Philippi was founded in 350 BC by Philip II, hence the name Philippi. It was conquered by the Romans in 86 BC, and it eventually became a Roman colony. Philippians, they prided 
themselves on being a Roman colony. This was a big deal if you lived in Philippi. It came with all kinds of privileges to be a Roman colony. You were exempt from taxes. They were allowed to govern themselves. There were all kinds of protections they had from being Roman citizens. There was this stoned path that exists to this day that goes through Philippi that Roman troops would travel down so that they could extend the Roman Empire. They had these protections from Rome. There was this pride they had. If you came into Philippi, there was this pride. We are a part of Rome. We exist to glorify Caesar. We represent the Caesar. One historian said this, He said, Rome's presence was stamped into the very fabric of the city. It existed to glorify Caesar Augustus and the birth of the empire. When you walked into ancient Philippi, it was unavoidable. The majesty and glory of Rome was front and center. They were citizens of Rome, and it affected how they lived, how they viewed themselves, how they treated others. It affected every area of their lives. So that's the context. So Paul is addressing these Christians in the church, in Philippi, in this city that lives for the glory of Caesar and the glory of Rome. And Paul is saying, as Christians, Paul is reminding them, your primary citizenship is in Jesus Christ. You belong to Christ. You exist to glorify Christ, not Caesar Augustus. Your main identity is in Christ, not in Rome. You have been called into a new kingdom. You are citizens of heaven. You are citizens of Christ's kingdom. And my desire for you, only this, the one thing I desire for you, this church that I love, is that you would live as faithful citizens of Jesus Christ. I think that's the main point of this text this morning, is to live as faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. He's reminding them, this is who you are. He has saved you. He's called you out of darkness into light. He's called you out of the kingdom of sin and Satan and brought you into his kingdom. Now live in the good of that. That's your identity. And he's going to tell them, here's these privileges that come with being in Christ's kingdom. And he kind of lays out for us through the rest of this letter, this is what it means to be in Christ. And so when we read verse 27, we, we shouldn't feel guilty like we're not measuring up, like we haven't earned this, like we're not worthy. We read verse 27 and we think, I've been called into a kingdom of Christ. By his grace. Now I get to live as a new creation, as a citizen of heaven. And it comes with it these privileges of being a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Just as these Romans had privileges of being a, a citizen of Rome, he's saying, You have these privileges. It looks different being a citizen of Christ's kingdom. And we're going to look at two of these privileges that are in our text. This morning, number one, privilege number one is that faithful citizens are not alone. Faithful citizens are not alone. 
To be a faithful citizen in Christ's kingdom means that we are united together with other believers. Look at the rest of verse 27. Right after he gives them this, this call, this desire for them to live as citizens of this new kingdom. He says, whether I come and see you or I'm absent, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul wrote this letter to be read to the whole gathered church. He intended it to be read like we are this morning. And he intended it to be applied together. Often our first inclination is we read this and our first thought is, well, well, how am I living a life worthy of the gospel? But I think his goal was was for us to hear this together in this gathering, that, that his desire is let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And he intended for us to look to the left and to the right and to look around the room and think we're in this together. He's called us into a new kingdom together. We are citizens together. It's not just about me and my life. It's us together. Paul's intention is not for them to look down and be self-introspective and analyze their lives to see if they're worthy. His intention is for them to look out and to look around and to think, look what Christ has done. Look what he has called us into. We get to do this together. There's this new, I think it's new, it's, it's a new commercial the NFL has put out. And typically, I hate commercials. It's when I usually leave to go get something to drink or something. But this one was actually, it kind of got me a little bit. So commercials don't usually do that, but this one got me. It starts with a middle school football team on a football field, and one kid is in the middle, and he says, today, Nothing else matters. As long as those beside you and those behind you know that you got their back. And then as he's saying this, there's this NFL player walking across the field towards the huddle. And the kid in the middle goes, who's got my back? And the NFL player walks into the huddle. He says, I got your back. I was like, all right, here we go, here we go. And then he said, who's got my back? I got your back. Who's got my back? I got your back. And then it cuts to all these NFL players and all these cities, and they're walking through the city, and there's hundreds of fans behind them, and the whole commercial is, who's got, who's got my back? We got your back. Who's got my back? We got your back. And at the end of the commercial, I jumped up, and I said, who's got my back? <laughs> and my kids, that was, they were just like, What? And from the other room, my wife is in the kitchen and she goes, I got your back. It's like, yeah, yeah. She's got my back. Yes, she's got my back. Listen, who's got your back? We got your back. That's what Paul's saying. Who's got your back? We're in this together. This verse is meant to be applied corporately. We're in this together. I mean, just listen to his language here. I mean, it is athletic terminology, standing firm, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Don't look inward when you think about verse 27, but look around 
Think we're, we're, we're in this together. We're fighting this fight together. The Christian life is inescapably corporate. They need to stick together. And I love how, how he says this, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind. Why? Verse 28, because they have enemies. They have opponents. They are opposed. Okay, a lot of verse 27, the application of this, this being a faithful citizen is we have enemies who are opposed to us being in Christ. And their opponents want to divide them. That's how Satan works. He's a liar and he wants to destroy the church. He's our enemy. And how he does that is he wants to isolate us. He wants to destroy us and he wants to separate us. I'm sure many of you have watched planet Earth, and one of the first things predators do is to separate their prey from the pack. Their opponents want to divide them. And Paul is coming in, and he's looking at the church, and in chapter 4, we're going to see that there's two women in the church who are having a disagreement, and Paul's going to appeal to them to agree in the Lord, and he's going to appeal to the church, help these two women because they've been vital to Paul's ministry. They've been so helpful, and now they're having a disagreement. And so Paul's going to address them, but now he's addressing the whole church, and he's like, stick together. Strive, fight for unity, stay together. This is how you live as faithful citizens. You are not alone. Stand firm. Ground your feet in unity. Be committed to it. Don't let anything divide us. Don't let anything come between us. Don't let anybody move you off the ground of we are united in Christ. And divisiveness is the air we breathe. Don't give in. Resist it. He's given us one spirit. We have the spirit of God. We've been united by the Holy Spirit. That's what his work is. He has saved us and he unites us together. He's building us into a household for God. The spirit has given us new hearts. It's interesting if you look at Galatians 5 and texts like that. Paul's list of the works of the flesh, the works of sin, and how many of them have to do with our relationships and our unity. In Galatians 5, in his list of the works of the flesh, he he mentions enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, things like this. And he says, these are not from the Spirit of God. These are a work of our sin, and we have to resist it. We have to call them what they are. They are works of the flesh. We have to resist enmity and divisions and rivalries and jealousy. We have to put these things to death. Listen, if there's any division, if there's any rivalry or jealousy, we need to be reconciled. You need to go to that person today and be reconciled to them because we have to guard our unity. We have to strive for it. We have to have one mind, he says. means a unity of purpose and mission. One mind does not mean we are identical. Okay, it doesn't mean we dress alike or we do everything the same way. It means that we have a different worldview. Bill mentioned this last week. 
means we, we see the world differently. We are in the kingdom of Christ. And now we look at the world through the lens of the gospel. So we don't all do all the same things, but the way we think about the world is the same because we have the same spirit. We have the same book that's guiding us. We're all conforming ourselves to the image of Christ. And so we're all thinking alike about who God is and who made us and the problem of sin and the resolution, the, the solution in Jesus Christ. We have a different worldview. We gotta stand firm, having one spirit, one mind. And then he says, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. There it is again, it's an athletic term. He's saying we're not running this race alone. It's not just me, you know, running and trying to figure this out by myself. Isn't it encouraging to know we're running this race together, striving side by side? We saw this documentary, I think it was last year we watched this. It was a documentary made by Nike and National Geographic that did a, a Documentary about these marathon racers trying to break the two-hour marathon barrier. I have no desire ever to try to break that barrier. They, they were trying to break this barrier. And it was very interesting to see these different runners try to do that. But what I kept being fascinated by, I don't know why, but as I was watching this documentary, they have these runners and they're trying to run and break this two-hour barrier. But of course, they're the fastest in the world. And so they, they had these pacers. These other people that would run beside them and they couldn't keep up with them for long so they would just run for one mile and then they'd break off and they'd run for one mile and break off. And I think they finally broke the barrier but it's kind of controversial because they had these pacers running with them. And the pacers whole job was to, to run with them and keep them on track, keep them moving, keep them on pace, keeping running at the right rate so that he could break this two hour barrier. And I just kept thinking, who are these pacers? I mean, they're the ones pushing him to do this, you know? Uh, they run beside him. They keep moving him forward. That's kind of the, the picture I got when Paul says, strive side by side. It's coming together and we're, we're running beside each other. We're just saying, keep going. Don't give up. Keep moving. You know, keep trusting the Lord. We're caring for one another and bearing one another's burdens and forgiving one another. We're running this race together. Every week we get to experience this. We meet together and we sing together. Christ, our only hope in life and death. And it just stirs your heart because we're all singing it together. We're all saying, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to believe that truth. We fight with it. And then we got all these voices around us singing together, Christ, our only hope in life and death. Doesn't that stir your faith? And man, it stirs my faith. Sunday mornings are a gift from God. And then we have these prophetic words and we're being encouraged to look to Christ in our suffering, to trust Christ, to not give up. And the Holy Spirit is encouraging our souls. And we pray for one another. We get to rejoice with George Jacoby that the Lord has been answering our prayers. All these things. I think that's what Paul means. Striving side by side. Coming together and encouraging one another. And stirring up our love and good works together. That's why the author of Hebrews tells us not to neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together because what happens is we begin to be isolated. We stop coming and then we're off by ourselves. This is exactly what Satan loves. 
Remove them from everyone else because then they won't be there to receive that, that singing and that joy. Being together stirs it up because we're striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And then in verse 28, here's the fruit of this, okay? If we're living as faithful citizens, he's called us into his kingdom and we're, we're stirring one another up, we're striving, we're running side by side. What happens is in verse 28, they're not frightened in anything by your opponents. They're not afraid. They stand together. They're united. They're not afraid of their opponents. They're not intimidated by them. Paul wasn't intimidated by his opponents, and they shouldn't be either. This has everything to do with what Bill taught us last week when he talked about to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you apply that message, if you apply that sermon last week and you believe it and you know it's true, then you cannot be intimidated by anyone. You will not be afraid anymore of what they can do to you because to live is Christ and to die is gain. What can they take? I love Martin Luther's line in A Mighty Fortress, which I'm guessing we'll probably sing next week because it's Reformation Sunday. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. That's the kingdom we've been called into. That's what we are citizens of. And so we're not afraid of our opponents. We're also not afraid because we're together. We're not alone. We're not off by ourselves, but we're striving together. And when we're not afraid, verse 28 says, it's a clear sign to them. It says something. It says something to our opponents when we're not afraid. It's a clear sign that God is with us. It's a clear sign of their destruction. And it's a clear sign of our salvation and that from God. It's a clear sign. He has saved us and changed us. We're not afraid anymore because we're together. And I just, as I was reading verse 28, I was just thinking about the youth of the church. Because I've been spending a lot of time with them, have the privilege of leading our youth ministry relay. And I just keep seeing as I'm talking to them and as they're asking questions about the Bible and they tell me what people are saying to them. What I see is there are all kinds of people out there trying to intimidate them. They're saying, no, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. That's not in the Bible. That's not true. What, what your parents said is not true. What your church is saying is not true. And they are fighting. I see the youth and they're asking great questions and they're fighting the fight of faith and they, they want to know what does this mean and what does the Bible say? And when I show them what the Bible says, their answer is so often, well, that's what I'm with right there. And I, it, I just want to honor our youth. It's so encouraging to be with them. They're really striving side by side. And just as a church, I want you to know they need you. They need community. They need your wisdom. They need your support. They need your prayers. It is challenging right now. The lies, uh, the attacks on the scriptures, on Jesus Christ and the gospel, it, it can be intimidating. They're not intimidated. They're not afraid. And so I want to honor them for their faith. They're fighting the good fight of faith. Faithful citizens are not alone. When you read verse 27, to live a life worthy of the gospel, don't just look in, but look around 
and think this is what the Lord has done. We're living these lives together. Number two, second privilege of being a faithful citizen. Faithful citizens get to suffer for Christ. Faithful citizens get to suffer for Christ. I use the word get intentionally there. It's not have to. It's we get to. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you. Suffering is a gift. Paul, do you see what Paul does there? Two things he puts in there, faith It's been granted to you not only to believe in him, not only to have faith, which is a gift from God, but also to suffer for him. He puts suffering and faith both as gifts from God. And Paul here is not trying to bring comfort to suffering in general, but specific suffering because of being a Christian. Suffering is not an accident. It's not a sign of divine punishment as if God were angry with us. It's actually a gift from his hand. And our temptation is when we're opposed or when we suffer or when we're persecuted, our temptation is to think I'm doing something wrong. And Paul is trying to help them see, no, 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 no. If you're being persecuted and you're suffering for Christ, that means you're doing something right. It's a gift from God's hand to you. And the Philippians should not have been surprised by this. In verse 30, Paul reminds them, you're not alone. You you saw the same conflict I had. You see where I am right now. Remember when when Paul first went to Philippi, that he was thrown in jail for the unrest he provoked by spreading the gospel. They saw this church was birthed out of suffering for Christ. And now Paul is in prison once again, and he's writing to them from prison, and he says, you see what's happening to me. He's not afraid, he's not intimidated, but he's suffering for Christ. And now he's telling them to live a life worthy of the gospel, to be a faithful citizen. You too get to suffer for Christ. You get the privilege of suffering for him like me and like you saw happen when the church was birthed. Because of our identification with Christ, because we are citizens of Christ's kingdom, we get to suffer for him. It's a privilege. It's an honor. John 15, 20, Jesus prepared us for this. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. There's many, many scriptures that hold out this promise for us of persecution. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. And now he doesn't want them to be surprised when they suffer. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants them to experience suffering and opposition. And he wants them to experience that and to be able to say, Lord, this is from you. Thank you for this privilege of getting to suffer for Jesus Christ. He doesn't want them to be surprised. He wants their faith to be built when they suffer. And he wants them to know this is what it means to live this worthy life for the gospel. This is what it means to be a faithful citizen of Christ's kingdom. You may remember Jesus 
told the parable of the sower. He talked about the seed falling on different ground where some of the seed fell on the path and it was snatched up by the evil one, the word of God, and it wasn't, it didn't take root in their hearts. And he mentioned some seed that fell on the rocky ground and the person receives the word with joy and this plant shoots up. But Jesus says, but then when persecution or tribulation arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He wants all the benefits of the gospel, but when when tribulation or persecution on account of me arises, he falls away. Paul is telling them, when, when persecution and suffering comes and you don't fall away, that shows you're bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. Shows you're a citizen of heaven. You're living a life worthy of the gospel. You're enduring suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. When we suffer for Christ, Paul wants them to be encouraged that they are faithful citizens. Just read a book about John Bunyan, a Puritan preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, one of the most, uh, one of the most read books in, in history. I think Harry Potter is competing with it right now, so let's keep reading Pilgrim's Progress and keep buying it. Let's keep it up there on the top. He was a pastor, John Bunyan, and he was arrested because he refused to attend services in the Church of England, and he was holding what they said were unlawful meetings because he was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was arrested, and he stood trial for his crime at the time. He was married. He had four kids. His oldest daughter was 10 years old, and she was blind. And he had three other kids younger than her, sole provider for his family. He stood before Judge Wingate, and it was offered to Bunyan to go. They brought him in front, they they showed him the charges, and they said, you can go under one condition. You can no longer preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen to Bunyan's response. He said, it is no secret that I preach the word of God whenever wherever and to whomever he pleases to grant me opportunity to do so. I have no choice but to acknowledge my awareness of the law which I am accused of transgressing. Likewise, I have no choice but to confess my guilt in my transgression of it. As true as these things are, I must affirm that I neither regret breaking the law nor repent of having broken it. Further, I must warn you that I have no intention in future of conforming to it at all. Obviously, his response infuriated the judge, and it perplexed his friends. Bunyan was thrown in jail for 12 years for preaching the gospel. It was from prison where he wrote Pilgrim's Progress and all these wonderful books we have today. 12 years away from his family. What's amazing is the whole time his family was provided for because the church cared for them. And he worked even from prison. While in prison, 
Bunyan held true to his word. He kept on preaching the gospel. He thought, what else can they do to me? I'm already in prison. So he preached the gospel to everybody that came into the prison. It was said in Bedford, he was in the jail in Bedford. It was said on Sunday mornings, if you walked by the jail, all the inmates were singing hymns to God and listening as John Bunyan preached his sermon. It was his new congregation. Twelve years he suffered for Christ. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't intimidated. He also wasn't alone as the church cared for his family. What got me about the story is after 12 years, and when he was released finally from prison, everyone thought that he would be angry or bitter, and his response was he was thankful. And they asked him, why was he thankful? He said, I was thankful for the privilege of suffering for my Lord Jesus Christ. Thankful for the opportunity to do it for Jesus. Let's go back to where we started. Only. Above all. One thing Paul desires for them. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Live as faithful citizens of Christ's kingdom. Faithful citizens are not alone. We're in this fight together. And faithful citizens get to suffer for their King, Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. And Father, I pray for this church this morning. You have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You have made us into a people of your own possession. And I pray for every person here this morning. I pray their strength would be, that their faith would be strengthened, Lord. That they would be strong in knowing you and believing you. That they would be strong in their faith as we sing these songs to you, as we pray for one another, as we come under the teaching of your word, Lord. That you would strengthen our faith. That you would strengthen and guard our unity this morning, Lord. We pray against all the attacks and lies of the devil. He hates us. He wants to destroy us. Protect us, Lord. Preserve our unity this morning. Lord, we want to be faithful citizens of your kingdom. We want to honor you. We want to live for your glory. We want to help one another and strive side by side. So this morning, fill us with that one spirit, Lord. Fill us with that one mind. Strengthen our faith, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message given by Mike Pluniak during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.